The reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 through 20. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Jordan. Morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. Obviously, Jordan has been trained in reading by Ben Bear and not Charlotte Thompson. So just thought I'd mention that for you, Ben. All right. Well, good to see you all. I've been away a little bit. Uh, Jackie and I had 12 days of vacation in central Wisconsin. We were not at camp. I know a lot of people are confused about that. Some of you thought we were at camp. Camp is yet to come. We were on vacation, and then as soon as we got back from vacation, the very next day, uh, the four Arcadia pastors left for our annual retreat up in Prescott. And, and I actually just want to show you something that uh, Tyler James, our executive pastor, put together a few years ago on how we do our retreats. Uh, this is what we do. We, we spend maybe six weeks before the retreat coming up with topics that we feel like we need to cover. And then we, we take the flat screen wherever we're staying. It doesn't matter where we're staying. We, this is what we use the TV for during the retreat. We have to do and done. And so we had seven items, major items, that we wanted to discuss this year, last year we actually had 12 and got through all 12, but we had seven that we wanted to discuss, and then as we work on them and finish them, we just move them over to the, to the right, and then of course, at the end of the retreat, we put the cutest face up there to say that we are done. So, so we had a great time on the retreat in terms of getting a lot of work done and getting clarity on, on many things, and we'll be unpacking many of those things in the, in the weeks to come, so I wanted to make sure uh, I mentioned that. Also, I want to thank the Tylers for uh, covering uh, the pulpit while I was gone. It was just a great time to be able to, um, I, I don't know, some of you I've told, uh, we've been looking for a church to attend in central Wisconsin for 25 years. We're a little bit spoiled, and, and we just, we've struggled to find one. Now we have one because we just, we just streamed the Arcadia service, so that's kind of cool. Anyway, um, now you don't do that. You should come to church. All right, so I just... You know, rules for thee, but not for me. That's the way things should run around here. Anyway, um, one other thing I want to mention. If you didn't know, today is the exact six-year anniversary of us opening up in this building and on this property. Yeah. And I'm telling you, the way God provided us with this property is an absolutely amazing story. And I love to tell it, and if anybody's interested in it, and wants to hear it, I'd be happy to come and tell it to you, but it's going to take about an hour, and it'll cost you a $5 latte, but it's really worth it, okay? And, and uh, trust me, it's, it's just amazing how God provided us with this uh, very valuable property right in the heart of Arcadia, which desperately needs a, a, a place of sanctity, I think, and, and God has provided it for us, and that's a beautiful thing. So today is our, tenth an our sixth anniversary in here, some of you noticed that there was a trailer out there by the patio uh, as you came in. So to celebrate, in between services, we have, it's called Rolling Sips, and it's two of our members here, Brighton and Azalea, who have started this business. It's been going for a little while now. And uh, what they make are not cocktails, but mocktails. And so you can go out, I would encourage you to go out and encourage them and get a mocktail uh, it's all free of charge. We're taking care of that. But please, in between services, go out and get something uh, to drink and, and encourage Brighton and Azalea in that. That's how we're going to celebrate that today. I know some of you were like, more mustache pretzels, but we're not going to do that right now. We're going to have drinks instead. So, all right? So, 
let's get back into what scripture has to say. I always miss being able to do this, and I'm glad to be back up here, and, and especially glad that we are in the Old Testament now. Some of you know I just love these Old Testament narratives, and the reason is not because of the storytelling necessarily, although it's really good and really interesting, but especially because these stories from 3,100, 3,200 years ago demonstrate very clearly to us how human nature has not changed one bit. We, are, we were the same then, we're the same now. We are inflicted with the same brokenness and corruption and trouble and issues, and, and this helps us to understand that, and then, more importantly, points us to a savior because we can't save ourselves, very important. And it's so interesting how all of this, this kingdom stuff that Tyler Thompson talked about last week, it's so interesting how all of that came about. So I'm gonna do a little bit of review, which we should do every week to be able to help bring people up to, to speed. But it's interesting how all this comes about. There's this man named Samuel, who was a prophet of God, and he was a very good man. In fact, both of these books in the Old Testament are named after him, and he wrote a lot of the books of Samuel. Um, and, and, and he was a good man, but he had sons who were rat finks. And it's interesting, because, and, and he, they got promoted into the ministry, just like Samuel. He was a prophet, he was a, he was a judge, he was all of this stuff. He was God's man, and he was a wonderful uh, ambassador and emissary for God, but his sons who got promoted into these positions, they were a problem. And if you have been reading in the story, you know that this is, is like a pattern because the person whose shoes Samuel filled, Eli, who was a wonderful man of God, also had a couple of sons who were rat finks, and, and they got promoted up, and the reason that Samuel became the main prophet, the main judge in the land at the time, was because Eli's sons were not capable of doing this. They had no integrity. Uh, they were only interested in doing this for themselves. So there's this pattern here that the people begin to see, and so as a result, the people of Israel, God's people, People ask for a king. Now they already had a king. It was Yahweh, the Lord. They had a king. But now they're asking for a human king, which is a problem for God and for Samuel, even though it turns out that we're going to get a king. It was a problem for God and Samuel, but in a way I can see why the people would ask for a king. This request for a king is probably sort of seeded by this, this idea that some are thinking, well, maybe someone with being charged as a king rather than a judge or a prophet, if, they, if we give them the title of the king and, and they lead us as a king, maybe they'll take integrity and ethics more seriously. And we can guess how all that turns out. Because your title is not going to change your nature. Your job description is not going to change your nature. It's our nature that we need to deal with. So Samuel... At this request, he goes to God and he seeks God's counsel. And to Samuel's surprise, God tells him to listen to the people. But also, God says, you need to warn the people as well. Warn them that this is not going to work out the way they think it's going to work out. Warn them that a king will be just as bad or even worse than Samuel's dishonest sons. And Tyler covered a lot of that last week. And so for us, it's so interesting how often you and I will put our faith in someone as a leader. We'll put our faith in a human being as a leader because we're sure, we're just sure, we're so certain that this person is an answer to all of our problems. Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Tom Cruise, it doesn't matter who it is, but then they always disappoint us, at least Hillary and Donald do. So God, through Samuel, tells the people, he says, listen, you're rejecting me. God says that. He says, I want you to understand that I know what's going on here. You're rejecting me. I'm your king. You're rejecting me. I'm the creator God of the universe. You're rejecting me. I'm the one who chose you to be his people. You're rejecting me. I'm the one who led you out of your captivity in Egypt. You're rejecting me. I parted the Red Sea for you and led you into the promised land. You're rejecting me. And I'm the one who provided for you and protected, for you, protected you during the wilderness wanderings of 40 years. And I've sustained you since I brought you into the promised land. You're rejecting me. It wasn't any of these people that did it. They did it through, I did it through them. And, and, 
he says to the people, haven't you noticed that every time you get into trouble, it's the direct result of not following me? Why is it you can recognize the pattern in Eli and his sons and Samuel and his sons, but you can't recognize the pattern of dissing me and then having trouble? Why can't you see that pattern? And yet, here you are. You would now rather put your faith and trust in some fallen sinful person who is sure to take advantage of you rather than thinking of you first. So Samuel counsels the people. And the real reason, I believe, comes out in verse 20 of chapter 8. It's embedded in that chapter, but the real reason comes out. The people want a king because they believe that somehow a king, rather than a prophet or a priest or a judge, a king will fulfill all their wishes and desires. They're going to be able to go to the king and say, this is the way you should do things. These are the policies you should have. This is the way that my life would be better if you would just go do this for me. That's what they're saying, and that's why they want a king. They believe the king will always see things their way and do as they want. And that only works is if 100% if of the population thinks exactly the same. Is that what happens? Never happens that way. And it's exactly the same thing we do with our political leaders today. You realize that, don't you? I know this makes people uncomfortable, but it's just true. We do this with our political leaders today. And of course, them, back then, 3,100 years ago, and us today, we just don't see the cost of this idea that putting faith in a human rather than God is going to be bad for us. So Samuel goes back to God after he warns the people, and God says, no, we got to just do this. And I suspect that this is one of those times when God, in effect, says to his people, I'm going to go ahead and give you what you want, even though it's foolish, because the only way you will learn how foolish you are is to suffer the consequences of your foolishness. So it's true that even today, God will, on occasion, do that to us and do that for us. That he'll give us what we want, even though it's not what's best for us, so that we suffer the consequences and learn something. The problem is, is that you and I rarely see that as his grace and love in action, but it is. It's his grace and love in action for us. So now the people need to have their new first king selected, and that's where we are today. So there's two chapters today. I'm not going to read everything. I'll read some. I'll summarize the rest of it. And Saul is going to be selected as the first king of Israel. But we aren't just told that in these two chapters. We get a lot of great backstory stuff. And, and again, it's, just, it's great stuff that I love. It's, it's good narrative. So the first two verses of chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So just reading these two verses, I get the feeling, and, and as I read them, I get the feeling that these two verses are setting us up for a big narrative now, a big story. And that's exactly what's happening. But one of the things that I think the author is trying to help us see in the midst of the grander story is that the best-looking, most popular person who also has some wealth is not always necessarily the most qualified person or the one with the best character. But that's the one who ends up getting chosen. And then in verses 3 through 14, this is a fun part of the story. Saul's father and his family had lost their donkeys. You saw it referenced in verses 15 through 20. But they had lost their donkeys. And so Saul is sent by his father to find the donkeys. Now, just a side note, in case you didn't know it, donkeys are a really important part of the Old Testament, camels too. So just be on the lookout for donkeys and camels when you read the Old Testament. Anyway, Saul and his companion, so Saul takes a companion with him. They go out looking for the donkeys. They're sent on this mission, and they go to city after city, town after town for three days. They're, they're just walking around looking for the donkeys, and they have no luck. Finally, Saul's ready to give up. He says to his companion, I'm worried my dad's going to wonder where I am now. And, and we haven't found the donkeys. Maybe he's going to worry that there's something wrong with me. But his so I want to go back. But his companion says, listen, I know a man of God who is a seer or a prophet, 
And he could probably tell us where the donkeys are, and he's just one more town away. So let's hang in there with the search for one more town. Let's go find this, this seer. And the seer, this prophet that the companion is talking about, is Samuel. And by the way, Samuel's a big deal by this time. He's not just a prophet and judge. He also has priestly duties. And Samuel becomes God's emissary in this process. And what we see in the rest of chapter 9 is that Samuel knows exactly what's happening because God has revealed it to him, but Saul is kept in the dark for a while. In fact, what we see is that contrary to how some of us might know and think and feel about Saul as the first king of Israel, at first, Saul was a really good pick. He was humble, he was modest, he was determined to do things God's way. At first, he was actually a very good pick. But what we'll find out is that this king, Saul, eventually gets, uh, being king, eventually gets to him and compromises him, just like it does pretty much everybody else. Okay? Anyway, Saul and his companions go, and they eventually, they eventually find Samuel. And so that's the passage we read today. I'll reread it, 15 through 20. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. I'm going to talk about that word a little bit. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to a high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable for Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? So that word prince is interesting. The writer uses this word, and it literally means a king in waiting, or more generally, just a leader, until Saul is actually consecrated as king. So he's not king yet. He's just going to be anointed, and he's going to be the king in waiting. And then verse 17, that word restrain. Saul is going to be the one who restrains his people. That's an interesting translation of that word. The word also means to govern, or to reign over, or to control, to control. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story before. I'm old, so I get to tell stories multiple times, all right? So in the 70s and 80s, when I was in the marketplace, I moved around a lot, and so I got very familiar with 70s and 80s versions of U-Haul moving trucks. And those of you who are older understand that those 70s and 80s version of U-Haul mover trucks had something on the engine called a what? A governor. That's right. So they were very frustrating. So no matter, you could press that accelerator through the floorboard and stick your foot into the engine, and it's not going to go faster than 60 miles an hour. That's it. It controlled, it restrained the engine from allowing you to go any faster. The, the, the U-Haul trucks aren't like that anymore, and I am so thankful to Jesus for that anymore, okay? But it would restrain your speed because they didn't want you to do something foolish with the truck that you're not used to driving, okay? So maybe the primary duty of government leaders is to restrain the people, you know, in a way that keeps them from making dumb mistakes. But as we'll see in this series... Those who are charged with restraining the people, that would be Saul, David, and Solomon, they also make a lot of dumb mistakes, and they seem to struggle with restraining themselves more than restraining the people. Isn't that right? Okay. People, life is hard, and we need Jesus. And this gospel moment is brought to you by U-Haul. <laughs> Something else that we glean from these verses... Samuel and God see the job of government as essentially two things. I'm not saying that this is necessarily correct for everybody in every context, but it seems to me that Samuel and God see the job as, of government as two things. Number one, to protect the people being governed from their enemies, both external and internal. And number two, to unify the people. So protect and unify. Again, it's hard not to think about the gospel when we hear that. 
The good news of Jesus is our protection from and provision for our defense against Satan, sin, and spiritual death. The gospel is our one and only answer to our gravest enemies. And consider also the unity aspect. The two become one language in the Bible. God and his people Israel, the two become one. Jesus and the church, the groom and the bride, the two are to become one. The Jews and the Gentiles, Ephesians chapter 2, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between these two ethnicities, these two races, whatever you want to call them, whatever the right word is today, you get the point. But that dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And in Christ, we become one human being. The two become one. Marriage, husbands and wives, the two are to become one. Unity, unification. And not only that, but then you look in the New Testament and you see 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Paul's treatise on the body of Christ and how we are all supposed to be one with different members, but Christ is the head, but we are one in Christ. Interesting, James Madison once wrote, what tears societies apart more than anything? Factions and triviality. People who are determined to divide people for whatever the reason it might be. It happens in governments, it happens in churches, it happens in the marketplace, it happens in families, it happens in schools. But people who are determined to divide people, that tears people apart. And then triviality, and I'll just say it. One of our greatest enemies today is the trivial way we as a culture treat the most important things while exalting the most trivial things. I mean, just think about if you even bother anymore. I hardly bother anymore. But think about what our news outlets choose to promote and cover. The silliest and most trivial things get all the headlines while the most serious items get pushed away. I, I just want, it's a rhetorical question. Was, was the trial of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp really that important? That that was a, you woke up every, anybody here? You don't, don't raise your hand, please. Did you wake, first thing in the morning, did you wake up and say, I got to find out what happened to Johnny and Amber. Uh, that, that thing in Ukraine, it can wait until I find out about Johnny and Amber, okay? Now, I could spend more time here, but if you're paying attention, and I think you are, you get my point. So moving on. Verse 18 is interesting. The Saul doesn't know Samuel since he's about the most important man in Israel at this time, but he doesn't know who he is. And then 19 and 20, Samuel does three things. He tries to put Saul's mind at ease. And then he tells Saul that he must wait to find out what's really going on in the midst of this donkey search and prophet inquiry. And then third, he lets Saul know that whatever is happening is because Saul is being shown favor by God. And so Saul's a tad confused by this, so he answers this way in verse 21. Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan in the Benjaminites the humblest of all the clans in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Saul says, hey, I'm from the smallest and least significant of the 12 tribes, and my people and my family, we have some success and wealth, but we're not royalty and we're not aristocrats. Yet you are showing me, you're showing me, somebody you've never met before, you're showing me favor. So Saul is genuinely taken aback. He's modest, he's humbled. And again, these are qualities that we would want in a leader. And so the end of the last six verses of chapter 9, Samuel then took Saul and his companion to a fantastic dinner with more than 30 people, and yet Saul was treated with the most honor at the dinner. He was given the best portion of food. He was given the best place to sit. And then if that, isn't, that wasn't enough, Saul was also given the best place to sleep that night before he would head back. So essentially, Samuel took him to the Biltmore and said, it's an open ticket for you, whatever you want, okay? So Saul had to be wondering, what in the wide world of sports is going on here? So I, I'm wondering if he even had troubled sleep that night. But the next morning, Samuel came to Saul and he says, look, tell your companion, he can go back, the donkeys are fine, don't worry, everything's, everything's good with your family. And then you and I can have a conversation, and I'm going to make known to you what's actually happening. And that's what we get in chapter 10. So a long passage here, nine verses in chapter 10. Here's what's going on. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Can you imagine Saul's, what he's thinking at that moment? That's wild. 
And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you uh, went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there, farther, and come, back, uh, come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you shall prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Then he turned his back to leave Samuel. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these things came to pass that day. So Saul is anointed at this moment. He's set apart or consecrated for special specific service. And by the way, anointing is not always done with oil. Uh, a lot of us seem to have this idea that you can only anoint somebody with oil, but oil is just symbolic of the Holy Spirit. There are other things that are symbolic of the Holy Spirit, including the community of God's people. It's not some magical ingredient to the anointing. But verse 1 is very clear. Saul is consecrated. He's set apart to serve as king. But Really important. This is under God's reign and sovereignty. So here, this will help some of you, not all of you. But Saul is not the Don. He's the underboss. He's the Kappa regime. Okay? And if you don't get that reference, you can look it up on the, on the Internet. It will be helpful to you to understand what's actually going on here. But you see this in the language in verse 1. Saul is going to reign over God's people, Israel, and he's going to reign over God's heritage, Saul has to see his leadership. Just like that relationship between the Don and the underboss, the underboss has to see his relationship with the Don as always doing exactly what the Don wants. You can't do anything different. You do something different, you're going to get into trouble. It's going to be a problem. There are going to be consequences. These are God's people and God's legacy. So Saul is carrying out what God wants. And when Saul deviates from that, when David deviates from that, when Solomon deviates from that, when Frank or Tyler or Tyler or Trey deviate from that, there is trouble. We need to understand that. So he's got to see his leadership, his reign as submitted to God and only for the benefit of God's people. God is still the owner of Israel. You know, if we did a title search today on Israel, if we could do this, if it was recorded, and we go back, 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 all the way to the beginning, we would see that God is the title holder of Israel, and other people have just been living there for thousands and thousands of years. And it's the same with this church, this church property right here. We own the title, the paper, to this 3.6 acres. But if we went back, we would see it was Biltmore Bible before us. And then before Biltmore Bible, it was a homeowner who had three and a half acres of a ranch here. And before that, I have no idea. Maybe there was nothing here. Camelback Road wasn't even here. But if we just kept going back, 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 we would see God owns this land right here. And by the way, it is that attitude of the elders of Biltmore Bible Church that led to us being able to have this property because they understood this as God's property and not a condo property. It's true. It's true. Okay. But unfortunately for Saul, like you and me and every other person who might lead something, Saul is a flawed human with a sin nature, and that gets in the way. So it doesn't always work out the way that it should. And this becomes a disappointment for Saul and for God and for the people of Israel. 
And then verse 3 seems casual and unimportant, like a weird detail, but it's, I think it's key. These three men going up to Bethel with all this stuff, the bread, the goats, and the wine, they're going up to sacrifice to the Lord. To stop and give some of their goods to Saul is a sign, an indication that they understand that Saul is God's anointed, that God is showing him favor. And verse 5 is interesting because this is Saul's home, Gibeath. And yet their enemy, the Philistines, had a garrison there, a stronghold there. So part of Saul's charge as king is to do something about that. And then finally in verse 6, what does it mean? What does it mean that Saul will be turned into another man? If you are here today and you are in Christ, at some point in your life you recognize that you're sinful, and that sin has separated from you, you from God. You're lost without a Savior in your life, and you've tried to save yourself, and that hasn't worked. And the Holy Spirit has worked in your life and has drawn you to Jesus Christ, and you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior. I think you understand what this means, that Saul will be made into a different man. The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon Saul. In New Testament vernacular, Saul becomes a new creation. And certainly, he's still sinful and influenced by sin, but now God's hand will be upon Saul. And the extent to, the extent to which Saul will listen and submit and obey, he's going to be a different person. I cannot tell you how many people who knew me before Jesus, I was 27 when I came to Jesus, the people who knew me before Jesus and then they, they've known me since I came to Jesus have told me that I'm a different person. Certainly still flawed, but now I have a different understanding of that flawedness and my need for Jesus in my life. My guess is that some of you have had that experience as well. So what happens? In verses 9 through 16, what happens is that everything that Samuel said would happen came to pass, including, ironically, people who knew Saul before all this happened could not believe the radical change in Saul. And some of them were skeptical about the change. In fact, some of them mocked Saul, choosing instead to think that there's no way that someone like Saul could ever be useful. In the New Testament, we hear about this with Jesus, you know? The people that knew Jesus his whole life were like, him? A rabbi? Him? A teacher? Him? A savior? Him? The Messiah? There's no way. And then Jesus even taught himself, in your hometown, a prophet has no honor whatsoever. Again, the people who knew me before I was a Christian... They can praise God for the work that God has done in my life, and they can celebrate that I'm a pastor. But there are also people who knew me before I became a Christian, and they've told me this. They refuse to attend this church or to listen to the gospel because they can't believe that God would use somebody like me. That happens. It just happens. So, verses 17 through 19. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, up out of Israel uh, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and all your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So, for whatever reason, Samuel takes another shot at the people. Takes one more shot at the people, and, and he's not necessarily trying to convince them not to go through with this. He's merely reminding them that when this king, things go, this king thing goes bad, and it will go bad, I warned you. It's his preemptive, I told you so. But in the midst of this shot, Samuel also reminds the people of God's ultimate faithfulness and that it is always God who will rescue and deliver his people, not some human being. We need to be reminded of that as well. And then lastly, verses 20 through 24. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, they couldn't, he could not be found. He's a shy, humble guy. So they inquired again of the Lord... Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all of the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? 
There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So Saul is now officially the king, not a king in waiting anymore or simply a leader. And in later weeks of the series, in fact, next week we're going to see this, we're going to see that Saul does prove his worth as a human warrior king by leading the Israelites into a magnificent victory uh, in battle. But then there's this question of the lots. I know some of you are like, chosen by lots, what does that mean? We're not exactly sure what it necessarily means to be chosen by lots in terms of what the instruments were that were used. There's all kinds of, just think of, I know, think of dice, uh, but some ancient peoples would also, uh, they would choose something by lot by opening up an animal and looking at the vein patterns in, in the organs of the animal. This is also a way of doing it. So we're not sure exactly how it was done. But we do know in this story that what's happening here is, is that ostensibly what they're trying to do is let the people feel like they're being a part of this, this process. But really, this process had already been decided sort of behind the scenes. And so now they're just acting it out for the people so that they can feel like they were a part of selecting Saul. And then lastly, in the final three verses of this chapter, which we do not read, we see something that is very common in every new governmental administration in the history of the world. Some people contentedly went home to live their lives, and others immediately despised the new regime and determined that they were in trouble with Saul as king. Doesn't that sound familiar? So, in wrapping up, I'm not sure how we can receive this story and not connect it to and understand our current cultural ethos. Now, I've argued I'm not saying this because I'm smart. I'm just saying I, I see the patterns because I pay attention to this stuff. And I've argued for more than five years, and many publications agree with this, including many people connected with the Gospel Coalition, and I know a lot of you take the Gospel Coalition very seriously, agree with this. The single and most destructive false god in our culture today is political ideology and the propping up of political saviors. And here's what's important for you all to hear. I am not talking about people who don't claim to know Jesus. I assume that they're putting their faith in political ideologies and political saviors. I assume that's true. I'm talking about people who claim Jesus as their savior. Many Christians who believe that it's going to be a politician that's somehow going to save them. God and Samuel spell it out here. It is God who saves. Not kings, not governors, not human regimes, not political ideology. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners separated from God by our sin, and Jesus came to die on the cross and to be resurrected, and if we embrace him, we can be reconciled to God. That's the only way we can be reconciled to God and have eternal life. That's the gospel. The gospel is simple, profound, powerful, and complete. And yet, like the Israelites... We are constantly lured away from Jesus, distracted by our culture, or enamored with the latest human contrivance as a pastor, as your pastor. I am begging and pleading with you, stay focused on Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that, uh, man, let's just acknowledge the incredible pressure we are constantly under to be distracted and to put our faith in things other than you. Help us to see in these narratives that we're going to go through for the next 20 weeks that really you are the only answer to what ails us. You're the place where we can find wisdom, where we can find an antidote for our own foolishness, where we can find joy, where we can find life, and especially we can find purpose. Help us to see that. Draw us unto you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lead, guide, and direct us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have a time of uh, reflection, time of response. We're going to sing a couple more songs. We're going to take communion together. If our communion servers would please come forward. That's that time, that night that Jesus was betrayed. He's doing the Passover meal with his, his disciples. And at one point, he takes the bread, and he changes the meal. And he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body, and it's given for you. Do this and remember it to me. And then, after they had supped, he took the cup with the wine. We understand this. This was of the four cups. It was the third cup, the, the cup of thanksgiving. 
And he held it up and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that as often as we eat the bread and drink the wine, the grape juice, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We need Jesus. And so I say this virtually every week. Coming forward to take the Lord's Supper is an act of confession and celebration. It's confessing that we are sinful and that has separated us from God, but we celebrate that that God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross as payment for our sins and then was raised from the tomb to give us eternal life with and in him. And so we celebrate that. So come come prayerfully, come uh, reverentially, but also come in a spirit of celebration that we get to do this together, that he has invited us to be one with him. And as you head back to your your seat, when you're ready, when you feel led, you can stand if you can, and and you can start to sing with the band these last two songs. Let's do that now.
what a blessing it is to sing that out as one, as uh, we get to all in agreement, declare what is true. What a good reminder that we may not be distracted from looking at Christ. Uh, I'm going to pray over us as we go. And remember, we do have these mocktails out here. Um, these, this is so neat that this is a couple who is just it, who is in our church. They worship with us every Sunday. I love this. Um, and it's a ministry that they get to do. I love that. So go and enjoy those. But this is a prayer I get to pray over us as we go into the week. We call it a benediction. Um, and a lot of times we want to use scriptures. We do this. And so this one's from 2 Thessalonians. And so receive this as you go into your week. May, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We love you guys.